Okay, you're on, Chaplain Raymond. This is a recording of Maxims of Law for the Republic State of Texas for the document that was dated February 6, 2011, uh, which will be recorded and saved on trsot.com. But we made a false start yesterday trying to get into it. And I think it's the relationship of the word authority and preposition of which caused somebody to see the law as possessing authority or providing authority when instead what it was the subject, authority of law, I thought we better give it a new title for purposes of discussion. And that new title is, From Whence Did the Law Get the Authority to Compel Performance? So that the person that the law is being applied to has the right to ask, by what authority did you have to create that law that you can bring in here and compel me to obey it? So, and that is where we were and what I think the confusion was, that we that it's a reversal. And it, if one is obliged to re, or required to obey a law, there must be of necessity a statement of the right to create the law for the law to exist or to be an authority for the law to exist. And law in the sense in which courts speak of it today does not exist without some definite authority behind it. Now, in the cases of our corporate uh, arrangement where we have all sorts of contracts, that is a confusing statement because the law that's being used is the law of contracts. Whereas the content of a contract is that which gives the ability for compelled performance. Which means one party consented to it particularly, uniquely, in that contract. It's a very private piece of, uh, I was going to say legislation and that's not correct. It's a private contract between two parties. It is not a law. It is the law of contracts that is enabling uh, one party to demand that the other party be compelled to perform. So compelled performance in a contract does not occur unless the other party demands it. And the authority then to demand it is by virtue of his rights that are defined in the contract. So when we talk about law in the sense in which courts speak of it today, it does not exist without some definite authority behind it. Uh, 
if we were in our common law courts in, in our full um, sovereign uh, status on the land in courts, we would then say, by what authority do we have? And the, in the legal profession, you have an authority which is defined by sites. Earlier today, we were looking at Article 1, Section 1 of the Declaration of Independence of Texas. Well, um, that actually, um, is it, nope. We, um, I'm a little bit looking for it, but what happens is that's the one that says sovereigns have the right to abolish their government. Sovereigns have the right to alter the law, alter the constitution that is their product, to amend it, even to abolish it and replace it which in fact happened when the Articles of Confederation were replaced by the Constitution for the United States of America. Um, the question we will be asking or looking into regarding all the oppressive and what appears to be unconstitutional law is what is the authority behind the law? What was that word, please? The ability to create the law. The answer to this primarily depends on the source of the law and the relationship to that source. Um, what was that, Will? There was one word that I couldn't hear because it was garbled. And unfortunately, it sounds like it was two sentences back. The question we should be asking or looking into regarding all the oppressive and what appears to be unconstitutional law is what is the authority behind the law? Yes. Now, in the case of your dealing with the, the corporate government, the authority is the existence of the contract. Now, there was a time when sovereigns had revoked all their powers of attorney that when we came up against having to sign our name in various venues throughout the, the system of commerce here, we could add the phrase when we signed it, just say non-assumpsit, which really means in the Latin for the commercial law that no contract, that there is no contract that this is being done under. Well, someone somewhere figured out that, uh, you know, that really puts us in a bind. We don't get control of them when we, when we let them do that. So uh, they were fear of being sued and other sort of negative things happening. So they began to indoctrinate their clerical employees to say, don't accept one signed that way. Hmm. And so you were, you were facing an individual who was not 
informed of the law or not anywhere there. All she was doing was following her orders to do her job. The next was we could try to sign it, uh, reserving all rights. And because you weren't in a contract, they began at the bank especially on the checks because they were dealing with fiat money and because they were not really dealing with, they're using your credit line to use money that they use or make use of, they couldn't afford to let us do that. So they canceled our ability to do that. I had another stamp made that put out a great big paragraph on the back of the chair when I signed, on the back of the check, not chair, the check when I signed it that identified the court document that I had filed in the public domain so that uh, it was pretty you know, it should have carried right on through and it should have overridden everything. But again, the clerk at the window, no dice. <clears throat> so you became somewhat alone. With the discovery of the freedom documents, these things get around it for a while and then somebody, uh, every one of those things should be permitted because it's the truth but you are just one person against the raging flood and it's very difficult to insist so we are in the business here of putting together the the proper sovereign based institutions which will enable us to establish a place for ourselves which we've never had in the longest time. Uh, the Authority of Law is actually the name of a book by Charles Wiseman. And uh, we have been in contact, not we, but Chuck Warwick, uh, who's on this call, has been in contact with Mr. Wiseman, and I have an email from him, which says I can call him, but I gotta wait till after five o'clock. And his book is something I was going to say. We are now at the um, place where I probably should go back and listen to the maxims we've done. Uh, see if they're thorough enough and rich enough and so that people can get it by listening to the recordings and move on to another layer in our education for those who have really begun to get a handle on what the maxims are. And I noticed that um, what we're dealing with is... Um, I did such a good job a minute ago to getting on, is this the one? Yes. I'm going to the new 
maxims that have been uh, document emailed out to you that is has February 8th that 2011 mentioned at the top and we're now going to where I was attempting to get today by discussing something about the authority of law yesterday. Now, what I am beginning to feel or understand is there are three pillars upon which you can base your status and your standing as a free man. And they need to be something you have a pretty good idea what they are. And they're listed here. One is the maxims of law. Now, you'll notice in that table of authorities that I did um, uh, earlier today, um, that we had maxims of law in the, in the list very early on. We had the Bible as the oldest book of law we got. And then we had natural law. And then we had maxims of law. And because they're the chiefest. And they were what were understood, especially when the people did the Declaration of Independence and other things that occurred in our history. Now, what I was planning to do was to organize the class on authority of law, and it's a book, 72 pages long. But what it gets into is some uh, really great information that is necessary for knowing how to migrate through or move through the systems that have been established for rule of law in free society. And one of the things that is in here, for example, is subject matter jurisdiction. It is the heart of understanding how to defend yourself or protect yourself in a free society. And you're saying, and it's, and subject matter jurisdiction gets down to things like, well, do you have a driver's license? Well, one department somewhere has primary exclusive subject matter jurisdiction. And it may not be the justice of the peace you're standing in front of. And so in matters like where you don't have one of their driver's license, which is a contract with that primary exclusive subject matter jurisdiction agency, there is a way to stand up and request that it be that the particular people you're talking to prove that they have primary exclusive subject matter jurisdiction or transfer it to the agency that does. So it becomes that sort of important. And if you don't have a contract, there is no primary exclusive subject matter 
jurisdiction. So in the case of sovereigns who have revoked all the signatures on their contract, you must get to the point where you can elevate that question in the proceedings to where that must be answered. And by being sovereign, it can't be answered affirmatively. You are compelling them to identify the fact that there is no jurisdiction for you to be there in that situation. So does that give you some idea of how important subject matter jurisdiction is? Yes. Now, subject matter jurisdiction is the specific meaty part of understanding what we put in the category of, of authority of law. So now, as a result, I feel that we have three pillars, the maxims of law. The second one is understanding that the, the first estate, you folks who are compacting with one another to defend one another, to do these things, to create constitutional governments who will write, who you will give limited power to, who will write laws within that limited power, and you are pledging to honor and abide by the laws they write in those limited areas, that the juries that I'm saying this backwards, excuse me, let me start over. The member, the parties to the compact, you are not members in the first estate. You're not members of a general society. You are a participant in the general society. You are a participant in the first estate because you are parties to the Jural Compact, the oath or the document that you sign, mm -hmm. pledging to defend the other man's rights, etc., etc., etc. So as a party, all those folks that are a party to that compact can be viewed collectively as a jury pool. From that pool of individuals, you pick and get your juries. Also, from that collection of parties to the compact, you get your candidate pool. Those who will run and compete for office. Okay? They're one of your colleagues one of your like kind who are going to be the candidates. And so when you, as electors, cast your vote, you're selecting one of your own to now become a servant. And they've requested it and are, are going in that direction. And they will be of the duty of working in those institutions that you have created that has limited power. So your election is their offer 
their taking of the oath of office and swearing their willingness to and their duty to serve to you and to uphold that that document that you created they will then be accepting your offer and it is to you they are one of the participants they are from the uh, the candidate pool and so their oath of office is to their fellow man their fellow free man their fellow participant in the first estate so that's a pillar now you we need to all understand that so that when and if you get the job one of these jobs like I'm holding right now the first thing that you must understand is that you're in a position where you have the duty to serve and that's how you judge your performance now the third thing that I feel the participants in the first estate or in the Jural Society, or in this self-government venture, is to know the role that the subject matter of authority of law takes in your ability to exercise the powers that you have. So it is my desire, and I think to the benefit of all of us, if we can figure out a way to go through this 72-page book. Now, we are planning. The man gave us permission to do that in, in, in general. I need to discuss it in detail. Probably what we will do is we will scan the pages in and um, I I think it would be a good idea if we were to each of us buy one of these the cost mm -hmm. of the book it's an eight and a half by eleven paperback mm. it's eleven dollars currently plus two dollars and fifty cents for us to mail it to you and what we would do is, that's one thing. But I've been reluctant to say, go get it, because somebody's going to read it all the way through and have questions at the end before I get finished with the beginning. <laughs> so I was going to try to see if we could figure out ways in discussions with uh, Mr. Charles Wiseman to see if he would let me uh, scan certain pages in and include them as an attachment to the maxims of law uh, email transmission and that we would go through it piecemeal in that manner and then at the end let you get the whole book You, I mean from him to help you know at least reward him for his great work. Mm -hmm. Now, I would appreciate if you would email me your comments about a plan like that. 
uh, by way of uh, should I mention your name, Chuck, or should I say they can get my email on the top of the website, right? Yeah, either way. Uh, mine's on there, too. Okay, T-R-S-O-T. It's uh, Chapman Raymond, T-R-S-O-T. So, are there any questions about anything I've said so far? Garbled words? In, in, effect, in effect, did you say with... Don't purchase a, a hardback or a softback copy of his book until after we complete going through the mimeographed or copied versions of it. Is that what you said? I would I would appreciate that because I'm afraid we would get questions about the end of the book before we're ready. Okay. But unless, you know, if you can appreciate the requirement that you hold off till we get to it in the class, I can't control it. You know, you can still go get them. I'm sure when you look on the Internet, you'll find it. So if you do get it, please honor my request. If we do not get ahead of other members of the people who participate in the course. Um, okay. How are we doing? We're how doing okay. Do we, how many do we have on today? We got four on the board. Um, I don't know how many on the phone. Okay. I, we, sometimes we get their name on the phone. Sometimes we don't. Yeah. Well, I did send an email to John Wren, who was on yesterday, and he did do what he said he would do. He wrote down what we had discussed and sent it, and that was the basis for the first document that I showed you. And um, so now there may be, um, we may add other pillars. I'm not certain, but right now there are three pillars that you need to think in terms of having a good understanding of. Now, Understanding the maxims of law doesn't mean you have to recite them, although it would be a great idea. But it, what it says is when you run into trouble, go look through them. See if any of them apply. See if any of them come to your, to your defense. The understanding of oaths is, the, I think, one of the weakest areas that we have in our self-government today. Very few politicians think in terms of their oath to the people in their districts. They see it as an oath to the government that pays them. Because they say, I'll uphold you know, the Constitution and defend. Now, you're defending it because that's the contract that the people or the compact that the people put in place that protects them. If you don't uphold it, you're liable to go beyond the limited powers. I heard the other day of our President Obama in Washington State saying that in the federal government, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's a that's a surprising thing for a politician to say after taking an oath of office. <laughs> anyway, now we're going to go on. Um, I think I've said enough. Are there any comments or questions about the proposed uh, class of the authority of law? None for me. Okay. But. Well then, why don't we stop the recording? Okay.